Welcome to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my famous co-host, Mr. C.H. Siddons. Hello. It's good to be back. He's on the Zoom machine. What's up? How are you, man? It's been a long time. I'm living the dream, really. Uh, and Peter Crable. Hey, Peter. Hey, you're on my teleprompter. That's right. <laughs> All right. No teleprompter jokes. Uh, <laughs> welcome back, everybody, to Ed's Not Dead. As always, you can find us at Ed's Not Dead PC uh, or the website, which personally I haven't visited in months, but it's called <laughs> Ed's Not Dead.com. Way to sell it. It's wonderful. As always, Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. We are back. The- We're back. Summer of COVID is not over, um, but we so surprising. We took a little break um, to be with our families and uh, catch up on our own lives, and now we're now we're back. So, just tell me, clarify for me: uh, is this the is this the end of last season or the beginning of the new season? This is the end of season three. Okay, I think right. technically so, and, and we, we can't. Yeah, we can't start a new season until like the school year starts. Uh, correct. Okay. Correct. This is like a summer break slash final season f- finale. So just think, I, I in our in our in our inaugural END episode, you don't like me calling it that. Uh, I think we discussed. Didn't we do like what human resources departments need to need to do to find good teachers or how do you hire good teachers? Wasn't that one of our segments? Yeah, yeah that's, we sounds about, familiar. We talked about Rahm Emanuel. Yeah, now three years later, we're going to talk all things school shutdown and the impacts of COVID on public education, right? It's, it's fascinating that we are where we are. All right, so uh, tonight we have a great show for you. We're, as always, we're going to start with show feedback. Casey's got some show feedback in the show notes. And uh, Mr. Siddons, you've booked a, um, I think it's our first reoccurring guest, is it, it not? It is our first two-peat. Two-peat. Tell us about our guest. We have uh, Dr. Johan Neem coming on the show tonight again. He came on the show during first season uh, as a, on our last episode, and he talked about his book called Democracy's Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America, and uh, he was generous enough to come on again to, to close out our season yet again, and uh, we're going to reference some of his quotes in our initial interview and see what's changed, what hasn't. I think it's going to be a really awesome interview. He was, he was one of our first really good guests in season one. Yeah, he's the show historian, so. Yes, that's right, right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, historian of record. Yeah, Crable was not on that interview. <laughs> we found out because you went back and listened to it, and you were also surprised at how professional we sounded, CH Sins, right? <laughs> well, you think about how far we came in that one season and all that we did. And uh, it, the, the ending of season one was like the pinnacle of where we were at that point because we were so clear and clean and we knew what we were doing it was a good structure and uh and it was good to have crable bookend the episode <laughs> as opposed to now where we're all bored with the show and none of us <laughs> and i have it. to be there the whole time yeah <laughs> no i disagree i'm not bored I, I i think we we need to do more of these episodes if nothing else we need to provide the public 
with a reason why Ed is not dead. That's what we need to do. Well, we will do that. Uh, we we were doing well in the spring. I'll point out we were getting yeah, we together did like three on, or four in a month. I mean, yeah. yes, we were on fire. Yeah, we were. Um, and then, as all of our fellow educators and colleagues know, the end of the year gets busy. And even when you're virtual, which we all were, right? It was still busy. Um, yeah, sure was. So, so we took a break. So we're back. Um, Mr. Siddons, do you have any show feedback for us? We do. It's a, some of it's a little dated, but it's still uh, appropriate. We have a feedback from listener Siobhan. And uh, Siobhan said, I love the virtual Ed's Not Dead. And when I'm walking and need to de-stress, which we all need to do nowadays, they strike just the right balance. Makes me happy to hear them. Thank you, Siobhan. We appreciate your feedback. Um, do, you know Siob- do, you know, do you know Siobhan? I do. I okay. Do. All right. Are we, are we supposed to talk about like the fact that we know all the people that give us feedback? <laughs> no, you make it anonymous. Right. That's why I said so much anonymous listen, feedback. Listener Siobhan. I just didn't know if you knew her or not. I was just curious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, okay. What else you got? Uh, the other one is a response to a blog post that yours truly wrote. And the, the post was, should principals and administrators teach classes once we return to school next fall, but really, should we be expecting principals and administrators to teach at all during our shutdowns or moving forward? Um, and our, our, one of our most loyal listeners, Kaz, Andrew Kozlowski, Mr. Kaz31, he said, I agree. I think another unintended consequence would be a boost in the quality of admin. Many teachers, myself included, don't want to move up because it means leaving the classroom. Uh, Mr. Koss texted me uh, out of the blue the other week. It was great to hear from him. I emphatically disagree with him. No, they should not, <laughs> nor do I want to. Yeah, but I think, uh, think of the power it would have to, 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 for administrators to teach one class. I'm just kidding. I, I would love to do it. I just would yeah, have I think to. You, I think you would love it. I would love it. I think I would love it. I I. I have a hard time conceptualizing how I would manage it with the rest of my job, but yeah. it could be done just like anything else. Right. It could, yeah. I could, yeah. I could, I could fit it in. I would, I could teach an English course. Um, I think I if, it, if you could figure it out like once a week. Yeah. Uh, my daughter always wants me to go back to teaching fourth or fifth grade. And um, <laughs> that, that probably appeals to me more than teaching at the high school. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else do you have? Thank you, Mr. Kaz. Yeah, that's our feedback. That's our feedback for now. Oh, is that, that it? <laughs> yeah. That I, did you, I actually, I thought, Casey Siddons, did you give us feedback? Oh, no, that's in your response to Kaz. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, Ed's Not Dead <laughs> tweeted it, and I said, it's a great read, but I'm biased. What say you, Mr. Kaz? It's self-promotion, but it's, it's shameless, but I don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Casey did a write a new, a new blog uh, post that he sent to me, which I have not read yet. So this one is something to be to I think is interesting because it came from it's it's a compendium of student voices from the school where I teach and uh, it's basically the students' voices about their experiences during the shutdown and how they feel about teaching and learning and living in uh, you know what we're living through right now a historic moment. And the most important people that we interact with, which are our students. And so I, I took, I got all their responses, all their thoughts and ideas and from a colleague, Mike Williams, who's amazing. And uh, I provided some context to it through how we should be more empathetic to what our students are going through. 
Very nice. Mike Williams, Teacher of the Year in past years and the founder of the Minority Scholars Program. That's right. Yep. That's right. Yep. Along with students. Yep. That's cool. That's, that's, that must, that's pretty powerful. Uh, why don't, but why don't you actually send me your blog post too? Are you afraid of my feedback? No, it's in the folder. You just have to look in the folder. Okay. All right. Okay. English literature, Major Robert Dodd. <laughs> uh, you should be able to edit some papers. Pretty, pretty good there, boss. Yeah, should... you need to give me some some feedback. Some I feed, should. some feed forward. That's the new. That's the new buzz phrase. Feed oh, forward. It? No, what? it's not. I've heard it. Blah. Get it out of here. <laughs> it made me almost. It made me dry here, but I heard it in some meeting. We're we're not going to focus on feedback anymore. We're going to focus on feed forward. <laughs> That's right. not real. <laughs> All right, Mr. Siddons, thank you for the feedback. Um, feed forward. When we come back, we are going to have guest Dr. Neem on the program. And uh, we are also going to talk about an op-ed uh, that was in the Post, uh, Washington Post this past weekend uh, that I really think um, from a first-person perspective of a superintendent – pretty much encapsulates uh, all that school systems are going through with the decision-making progress on how to keep students and staff and communities safe during COVID and still provide education. So we're going to dig into that, right? Yeah. All right. All right, right, folks, don't go anywhere. Uh, We will be right back. Thanks. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. Fellas, we are incredibly excited to have Dr. Johan Neem, who's a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture and a professor of history at Western Washington University. He's the author of a book that we discussed so long ago (laughs) on our last episode with Dr. Neem uh, from season one, episode 19, Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. Dr. Neem, welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. We're incredibly excited to have you. As Casey says, you're our first two-peat. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to be back. Thanks for having me. All right. You were, you were undoubted, undoubtedly our, 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 our really first great guest from the first season. So we're glad you're back. Uh, let's, let's jump right in. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. <laughs> so your USA Today headline for your opinion post does the COVID pandemic spell the end of public schools? Casey texted that to me this weekend. Full disclosure, I said I wasn't going to read it because it was hyperbolic. Um, but uh, I, I th- then once I found out it was it was from you, I felt guilty. As someone who wrote an incredible book on the rise of public schools, is this something that you really believe is possible? Well, that's a really good question. I think it's possible. I don't necessarily think it's the only thing that could happen. Um, But the reason I think it's possible, just really quick, is that I think we're hitting a moment where longstanding policy goals um, having to do with charters, vouchers, and other kinds of things are meeting a pandemic that has put parents and principals and teachers in an impossible situation. And The part that I'm worried about is when I wrote my history of public schools, one of the things I realized was, you know, no matter how eloquent 
Thomas Jefferson or someone like that is about how important public schools are. It was the schools themselves, as people started to send more kids, the schools themselves as institutions built support. And what happens is every parent cares about their kid. Right. But by sending people to common schools, they invested in other people's children. And so my only my fear is if people start, especially privileged people, start forming pods or finding alternatives, they'll continue to invest on those roads and we'll have what we had before, which is more of a kind of you know, one kind of private system and a kind of charity system. And, you know, I'm not predicting the future, but <laughs> it's something that we need to be concerned about as we all make individual choices about what's going to happen in the fall. And, you know, we are at a, a interesting crossroads of like so many different movements right now in terms of um, social movements, in terms of global pandemics, in terms of school and what school is. Um, but certainly also uh, another part of that is, the ever-increasing inequality in America. So I guess um, it's a, it's kind of a multi-part question. So, you know, we, you mentioned, and we will talk about pandemic pods and parents getting together to sort of privatize their own neighborhood schools. Um, and then from a historical perspective, is this something that there's a precedent for? You know, what did it look like? Um, I know... You, you can see in the past and not the future, but I would like to know what it looked like in the past so I can see, all right, how, how similar are we to kind of recreating uh, some of those same missteps, in my opinion? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. I think there's sort of multiple spots in the past that are really relevant right now. One would be the kind of decades after the American Revolution, where most people thought education was a family responsibility. And one of the things we hear a lot from like Betsy DeVos is education is really a family responsibility. And what that meant is if you were rich, maybe you, your family hired a tutor um, or maybe you even, you know, got sent off to some place. Um, but it was not necessarily expected that you would invest in educating the other kids in the community. Maybe the church would do some of that, you know, um, so one one vision is that vision. Um, one vision would be my my colleague's historian Mark Bunshoft calls it aristocratic education. Um, another precedent, obviously, but I think we are in a slightly different moment is the the after Brown versus Board, where where families resisted integration and white families resisted integration. In some southern states and districts shut down their schools. Um, but I think you know. The parallel there has to do with how do we think about the public and the public good. But I think the pandemic, a lot of parents are not responding specifically to, you know, resistance to racial equality or something. They're they're responding to a crisis that, in a way, just parallels a particular set of policies that had not really managed to take off before about school choice and privatization and things like that. And so... I don't want to, you know, while the effect could be greater racial inequality, what we what we see in both these cases are moments where the private interests of families um, trump the public interest in investing in all kids. And I think that to me is what's at stake. Yeah. In in the follow-up, I guess, to that, so is do you think that it, it is just a response to an extraordinary event? Um, or are we in um, like a resurgence of 
individualism or selfishness or whatever you want to call looking out only for you and like not really caring about anyone else. I mean, it's always been kind of an undercurrent and certainly always there. Is right. it just bring that to the fore or is it, it, do you look at it as just more of a response to this, this, this craziness that we're in? Um, I think it's, I think it's yes and no. I mean, I think we are seeing in some ways our understandings of individual freedom are not always compatible with providing collective goods, right? Um, on the other hand, lots of people who will make choices that seem selfish when we add them up in the aggregate are doing things out of love or are generous um, as individuals or as families. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I think what we have, in a sense, if we think about the broader policy world, right, you have, in terms of thinking about privatization, you have one group of people who have been against government and they've been trying to push against the public schools, but most Americans were so supportive of public schools, they made no headway, right? You have another group of people that was bipartisan, but they were really struggling about how, what do we do about high poverty schools or schools that we just can't get to work? And they were looking for policy choices and things like charters or choice emerged as possibilities, but their goal was to further equality. Whether or not it does is a separate question, but, but their goals were. And you have a third group that I think DeVos particularly gives voice to, which are people who feel alienated from the public schools that, you know, they're conservative Christians or sometimes conservative Muslims or Jews. And they want choice just like Catholics did in the 19th century um, because they don't feel the schools are the right places for their kids. And these, these kinds of form a common path. But I think, again, the magic of public schools was that they were mass participation institutions. So you didn't, in a sense, if you were a parent, there is selfishness, right? People segregated by race and economics and people you move to the best district they can afford and things like that. But within those spaces, people invested in the common institution because their kids were there and they had some stakes in it. And so you could, you know, there was individualism and, and, and collective commitments went hand in hand. And so that's actually, I think, the secret sauce, you know. Um, so, so can, connected can, to that piece that you're just talking about in terms of private schools and the charter school movement, uh, I don't know if you saw in the news, Maryland, the governor just overruled um, our county's health officials who made the decision to also force private schools to shut down through October. Um, if, if private schools remain open, which it seems like they're, they're going to be allowed to do beyond the, the people getting sick or the possibility of people getting sick, does it, do you feel like this is a movement toward more folks heading to private school because it's their only option for in-person learning? And, and what do you feel like that would be the impact of this over time? Yeah, I think I think you if a critical mass of privileged parents were to make those kinds of choices, um, that would be a turning point. I think we could see the opposite, right? We are also starting to see um, a sense, I think, of how dependent we are. Going back to your question about individualism, we may also be learning that our individual success and our individual freedom is so dependent on the strength of our institutions that. Right. We could see a turning point that goes the opposite direction from my my op-ed, right? That yeah, you know, and it's certainly my goal was to sort of move us in that direction to say actually we really need these institutions, you know, and their absence has been a real like we're feeling their absence in a way we would not have otherwise, and maybe we'll start to move back to them and start to reinvest in them, and so 
it's hard to know, but right. I think it matters how we talk about it and the choices we make and how we start to express why we're making those choices. And, and I think the kinds of narratives we offer. And, and Robbie, you've talked about it a lot with us where we've had our conversations about the fact that uh, schools are being overburdened with all the, the, the social ills that kind of arise, right? Did I say that? You've talked about it many times. <laughs> I don't really like the way it sounds now, though, the way you just said it. Well, uh, you, you don't, do you not agree that schools over time have, as social ills become more and more prevalent, schools are expected to take on those extra, uh, those extra things, whether it's healthcare, mental wellness, yes. whatever it may be. Maybe I didn't, maybe I butchered your quote. No, no, no. I, th- I, I think the spirit of that is, is right. And I, and I, I, I haven't, you know, I want to be careful not to paint those things necessarily as burdens, but I do think as an institution, public education has um, tried over the decades to, to ameliorate some of those things. Um, I'm, and so that's a nice segue. I was going to ask Dr. Neem, um, this question is kind of forming in my mind, but, you know, at, at kind of an inflection point like this with the pandemic and other social movements for, um, you know, what we see happening with anti-racism and, and racism across the country, but let's stick with the pandemic. Is there any precedent for the involvement of government at times like this in the past, I, my impression is, um, is, is government has not been very involved uh, in trying to um, make sure that public schools take the path that you've described, which is maybe people lean more and get more invested in our institutions. It doesn't seem like uh, the federal government has done anything to incentivize that. What's your sense? And can you give us any historical background of, of any times in the past where, where they have played a key role? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things to just start with is if you were in the 1970s and you were a, you know, anti-government type who felt, you know, you want to take on social security, you want to take on public schools. In other words, you're frustrated because these are huge public programs that seem so popular. You couldn't make any headway because they actually were so popular. Right. Um, And they had so many stakeholders that there was no chance, right? Um, so that alone is a kind of precedent to say when you know we have mass public institutions that provide high quality outcomes to large numbers of people, people are invested in them. They want them to stay. One of the things that's interesting, if you go back to the era um, after Brown versus Board, where you had a lot of resistance in the South, was that you know we it wasn't just two parties, you know, white people and black people. I mean, the the white population was pretty divided on this. I mean, you had obviously racial progressives who wanted integration who were white, but you had a lot of racial moderates who, for them, segregation and racism were not the primary motives of their lives, right? And when the schools shut down, they realized, actually, we want our schools up and running. Right. And this system is not working. And these kind of racial moderates, as it were, pushed to get the schools integrated and back online. Um, And so that's a kind of precedent where you could say, look, people, you know, realize that they're, they really want these things and, and they're willing to make 
some sort of compromises. In this case, you know, these, you know, people were willing to sort of say, let's, let, we, we have to do integration because that's the new law. Mm-hmm. I think to your point though, about, about federal involvement, I think, you know, federal and state governments have been often involved during crises. But I think what's different is that our state governments are facing, you know, just such a huge economic hit. And the federal government is the only per- the only agency that can bail them out. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of state constitutions don't allow states to go into debt, you know, and so they have to have balanced budgets. And, um, and the states haven't been provided the assurance that they will be supported. And I think that's one of the reasons we're facing this kind of crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not good in the long run, you know. Yeah. And, and one, one, of the, one of the things we've talked about um, is sort of the, 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 the flip side of that, I guess, of that coin is the need potentially for private industry and private businesses to step in and fill that void, whether it's uh, a company like Verizon giving free broadband access to um, rural areas, whether it's a company like Google passing out 20 million Chromebooks, I mean, you know, investment on, um, on a significant scale. Right. Is that, um, is there a history in this country of, of, of private players really being heavily invested in public education to like make up some of the shortfalls that you mentioned that are about to come um, and, and probably impact schools pretty severely. Um, is there is there any history of that or would we kind of in, in uncharted waters were that to happen? Well, there is a history of that from the very earliest days, for example, publishers realized there's a market here, <laughs> right? Um, there's a market here for books like the McGuffey readers and things like that. Um, and and in the in the post-World War II era, there was, you know, and particularly in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there were things like um, is it school one or channel one, you know, these companies trying to provide a service for a profit. Of course, there's things like soda companies trying to provide access, right. Provide, you know, in return for a certain amount of money, schools will be a Coke school or Pepsi school and things like that. I think what we're seeing here and, and federal foundations, I mean, foundations and private money were deeply involved, for example, during reconstruction in helping build and establish um, schools for African Americans um, after the Civil War. So there is a lot of precedent for private money. But I think what's different right now is two things. I think the recent movement towards privatization is really about shifting a lot of control out of citizens' hands into corporate hands. So the Gates yeah. Foundation, for example, one of the things they like about charter schools is that they're not governed like public right. schools, right? right? And so so that control over curriculum, control over um, hiring and firing move out of public hands in a certain way, right? Um, and the other piece is why this is a sign of how broken the richest country in the world is when we're, you know, I, I'm glad that companies like Verizon are providing, you know, some services, but really, you know, we, yeah, we should rely on that. broadband access to people. Um, if kids need computers in schools, we should be able to afford them. We shouldn't be right. dependent on other companies to do that. So from my perspective, this is a sign of a failure. Yeah. That doesn't mean in this crisis, those needs aren't there, but. Don't, 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 don't you love that the, that uh, Bill Gates despises governance um, (laughs) when Microsoft was like the most top down (laughs) 
monopoly in the in the twentieth century. I just I don't get. I mean, it's just kind of. I think that's irony, Robbie. It's irony. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, are, are are we ready? When is when is the quiz for Doctor Neem? Or well, do you have another Yo- question, Johan? I have one last question, and then we're going to go into so. You you haven't experienced this because we picked this uh, guest quizzes up I think in the second season but oh no uh, we have uh, so you're you're gonna have your first guest quiz uh, but before we get there uh, when we last spoke at the end of season one which was 2018 um, I asked you to to kind of bookend our our conversation about some of the ills of our of our public school system to end with a positive note what what gives you hope. What gives you hope in these challenging times? So I'll tell you, you know, what gives me hope is things like the Black Lives Matter movement. What Mm -hmm. gives me hope is parents struggling. What gives me hope is us realizing when our government is failing us, it's not just failing us because Donald Trump is president. Uh, It's failing us because we've had decades of underinvestment in institutions yep. that that quite you know we've had decades of underinvestment we have decades where you know while things like public schools promote equality they've also sustained all kinds of inequalities we've had and now we're starting to say wait a second maybe we want a more robust public sector i mean yep. everything from you know the faa and its relationship to ensuring that when it says a plane is fit to fly it has the expertise to do that yeah to ensuring we have racial equality at our local schools, right? Healthcare, and I think yeah. healthcare and things yeah. like that. We're seeing in a way that I think, you know, no all kinds of data didn't quite show us. We're seeing it in our experiences, we're seeing it in images of people that that we're a society that in some ways is actually quite poor. Yeah. Um, and that being a rich country does not mean we have that or having the wealthiest people doesn't mean you live in a rich country sometimes. And, and I think what gives me hope is people are starting to say, how do we not just get back to where we were, but how do we collectively produce something better? And so that's my hope is that in some ways, some of this language about privatization and defunding and all this from the defense department to education could have hummed along. And maybe this is a crisis that moves us towards a more generous, understanding of what we owe to each other as fellow Americans. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Thank you, Dr. Well, well said. And uh, next time we have you on, hopefully we'll be moving in that better direction. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. But I'm scared about this quiz because, you know, I always have test anxiety. It's no, it's, it's not, I'll tell you, it's not that bad. It'll be fairly ridiculous. You'll be fine. (laughs) Well, all right, Johan, it, it was a, has been a pleasure having you on the show for our first two-peat visit tonight. Thank and you. And we're honored Thank that you, you took the time to be with us yet again. Uh, but now we have to end our time with a quiz since you are an educator. Oh, no. It seems only right. Uh, well, Johan Neem, we know you know a lot about the history of, of public education, but we want to know what you know about another famous Johan, Johann Sebastian Bach. Ah. The <laughs> German composer and musician of the Baroque period answer two of the three quirky facts about one of the greatest composers in history and you win. You ready? Yeah. All right. I hope you studied. Number one, one of Bach's first jobs was as a church organist in Arnstadt. When he signed up for the role, nobody told him he also had to teach a student choir and orchestra, a responsibility that Bach hated. 
of the following, what transpired during his time as choir teacher? A, he got in a fight with one of his students. B, he smoked in the teacher's lounge. Or C, he refused to eat German pancakes. Mm. I'm trying to imagine, you know, hard rock style Bach going the harpsichord down, you know. Just throw his wig out of the way. My problem is I'm a silly person, so I'm closer to Johann Strauss than Bach sometimes. And so, um, I think he got in a fight with the student. You are correct. Not, not, <laughs> one, not one to mince words. Bach one day lost patience with a error-prone bassoonist, Johann Geiserbach, mm. and, and called him, wait for it, a zippelfagotist. That is a nanny goat bassoonist. The worst of all insults. What oh, I can't answer. even imagine that coming out of Bach's mouth. Well, you're doing great. You started out great. Number two. Okay. Bach loved this morning drink enough that he wrote a jingle about it. Is it A, tea, B, coffee, or C, orange juice? Ooh, that's a tough one. Mm, that is a tough one. <laughs> um, it forced me to do some chronology. <laughs> um, what would he have had access to and that would have been widespread enough? Um, Good test taking strategy there. Perfect. Yeah. I know. I'm just. I'm going to go safe and go with orange juice. Oh, actually, it's B coffee. Oh, yes. Oh. And coffee was and, an exciting thing, huh? Uh, and it was. It started with Schweizstille plaudert nicht, which means "Please still <laughs> stop chattering." Performed in 1735 at Zimmermann's Coffee House in Leipzig. The song is about a coffee obsessed woman whose father wants her to stop drinking the caffeinated mm. stuff. Well, you have one more chance. Okay. To redeem yourself, number three, because of his adherence to the older, more conservative forms of musical composition, his son nicknamed him what? Is it A, the old man, B, the old stick, or C, the old wig? Hmm. Hmm. Let's go with old stick. Oh, like ah, actually, it's the old oh. wig. Oh, no. <laughs> now, I have, I have a bonus question if you want to try it. Um, sure. Why not? <laughs> All right. This last one's a bonus. When Bach was 65, he had eye surgery. The couching procedure, which was performed by a traveling sur- surgeon named John Taylor, involved shoving the cataract deep into the eye with a blunt instrument. Post-operation, Taylor gave Bach eye drops that contained mercury pulverized sugar and what other ingredient a pigeon blood b the eye of a newt or c a shrubbery Mm. i'd go a i'm going a i was going a A is correct it was blood uh uh, just a little hint it didn't work oh no (laughs) (laughs) completely yeah all right. Uh, that was great. Thank you, Mr. Siddons. Well, well, well done. And, and Dr. Neem, uh, great job. You, you survived there at the end. Um, could, you, uh, could you get our listeners up to date on what you're working on? What do you have in the hopper as far as research or what you're writing aside from the op-ed in, the, in USA Today? Sure. I had a book come out called What's the Point of College? Oh, It's a short book um, that's kind of designed to answer that question. And 
And I'm just trying to help us see that, again, in a time of a lot of change, sometimes we need to remember what is our core goal and then innovate to achieve that goal. Mm. And so in the face of a lot of reforms that I think send us the wrong way, but I certainly agree that colleges also need a lot of reforming. Let's try to find, let's try to remember what we really want and then work our way forward from there. What's the point of college? Folks can find that online? They can find it online. Okay. Yeah, they can okay. find it. Okay, good. And where, and where, can, uh, where can people fo- follow you on Twitter? What's your handle? It's, you it is, I am on Twitter. It's at Johan Neem. So it's my first name, last name. Okay. All right. Great. All right. Well, on behalf of the boys, Peter and Casey, thank you, uh, Dr. Neem. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. Um, our, our, we're, we're lucky to have you back and best wishes in all your work going forward. And we'll, we'll get you on again uh, next season. Thank you so much. It's great to see you all. We'll all right. Thank Thanks, you so Dr. Neem. Bye-bye. Welcome back, folks, to Ed's Not Dead. As always, we are brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. Uh, that was a wonderful interview with our friend of the show, friend of the pod, Dr. Johan Neem, wasn't it? It was, our resident historian. That's right. Yes. I, 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 um, He's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, aside from being brilliant, I find him very easy to listen to. I hope our, our, our audience feels the same way. Yeah. And he's got a little side to him, too. He thanked me for coming on an interview in the last <laughs> time, too. Yeah, he he kind of busted your chops out when we were off, when we were off air, right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. funny. Yeah. That was good. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get Doctor Neem on back again. Casey, what was his uh, Twitter handle? Do you recall? It was his name, Johan Neem. Okay, so if you want to find J O H A N N N E E M. All right, I'll put it in the show uh, notes. Put it in the show notes. All right, switching gears. Are you ready? Ready. Uh, this past weekend, there was a really interesting, I guess it was, it was an op-ed. It was titled Voices from the Pandemic. Um, it was a series of first-person um, narratives by various people across the country about the impacts of the pandemic. And the one that naturally caught our eye uh, was titled, I'm sorry, but it's a fantasy it was written by Superintendent of Schools Jeff Gregorich, uh, Winkleton, Arizona. Is that right, Mr. Sins? That's right. And um, so the the point of this is that uh, Superintendent Gregorich is basically between a rock and a hard place. He um, has been told by the state that he has to open. If he doesn't open, he risks losing uh, 5% of his budget. That's right, right? 5%? Yep. Um, which he, uh, which equals hundreds of thousands of dollars, and um, he makes the point in the op-ed that that would have an incredibly onerous impact on their ability to provide education to their students. Um, I'll read you just a quick piece of this. This is your classic one-horse town. Picture John Wayne riding through cactuses and all that. Uh, we have a skeleton staff. We pay an average salary of about 40000 a year. I've got nothing to cut. We're buying new programs for virtual learning and trying to get hotspots and iPads for all our kids. 
5% of our budget is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Where's that going to come from? I might lose teaching positions or basic curriculum unless we somehow get up and running. Uh, then he goes on to talk about maybe the most poignant uh, part of the op-ed. I don't know what you two thought, but he describes the three teachers that came in to work in a classroom over the summer who socially distanced, wore masks. Um, they were teaching virtually from the classroom. I believe that all three of them contracted COVID and one died. Isn't that oh, correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it had a, an incredible impact on the, the, the staff in the, in this small system uh, and the community because she was a teacher in the community. I think they said from 1982 till now. Yeah. Um, so it was a tragic loss and that has weighed on, um, on Jeff Gregorich uh, mightily. So here he is. Uh, the state's telling him he has to open. Uh, he knows that he risks a lot by opening, mainly the health of his students and his staff. Um, what would you guys do? I would not open under any circumstances. I understand the conundrum. I understand the importance that um, schools play in terms of childcare one um, so that pe parents can work, but also um, just in fostering a, a life, you know, places, schools are places where kids, yes, they learn, but they also learn how to connect with others. They also make lifelong friendships. They learn how to connect with adults that are not their parents. Um, but in this particular instance, there are so many unknowns uh -huh. um, from how spreadable is the disease? How spreadable is the disease amongst children? Um, how fatal is the disease amongst children? What are the long-term effects of, of actually catching it during the formative years that I just don't see how you could, with a clean conscience, be like, yes, we're going to open schools. You know, if you want to close something, close the bars, close uh -huh. the restaurants, close all those things. So I think there's a lot of other ways to deal with it. And I personally find it ridiculous and unfair that somehow schools are being put in these positions to make um, uh, these opening and closing uh, decisions sort of unilaterally. It's like this dude is not a public health expert. Right. He's no background in epidemiology. He knows how to run a school. Yep. And I've said to my wife on several occasions, I'm like, just picture me, my intelligent, well-read person. Yes. Do I have the slightest qualification to determine whether to open a school in a pandemic? No, I do not. And that is the vast majority of our education leaders, and that's the position that they're being put in. Yeah. But Casey, before you respond, I want I want to I want to prime the pump before you respond with this. He goes on to the article. In the article, he says, "I've gone over it in my head a thousand times. What precautions did we miss?" What more could I have done? I don't have an answer. These were three responsible adults in an otherwise empty classroom, and they worked hard to protect each other. We still couldn't control it. That's what scares me. To, to bring some uh, needed levity to this conversation, uh, I, I listened to the Johan Neem episode, right, before we recorded this episode. And I don't know if you recall the time when we had, uh, there was a, the, the job of a superintendent is challenging. It, it, there, there are oftentimes decisions that are made that are, they're all bad options, right? When we had that conversation with Johan two years ago, we were talking about a superintendent in New Jersey who did some terrible things 
on a track field, if you remember. I do remember. I, I, I believe he <laughs> he he pooped on the track. And I think there was a part of that discussion that we later cut out and no, one, we, and no one ever heard. It out. Is right. that correct? Yeah. It's in the, it's in the archives locked away. But uh, no, fast forward two years later and school leaders across the country are facing these decisions there are some states where the decision is in their hand and there's others like this one where they're being forced like in Florida and Arizona where they're being forced to open back up. And I'd like to think that once kids and staff get sick, they will renege on these decisions and close schools, but I'm not optimistic. Uh, We thought that after Sandy hook that the GOP and the NRA would stop would allow for gun legislation and, you know, stop school shootings. And it didn't happen. And I, I don't think it's going to happen even now when, when all these teachers and students get sick. So, you know, I mean, you asked Dr. Neem last question was, you know, what's he hopeful about? What gives him hope about public education? Um, I mean, this is oversimplified, but to Peter's point, I, I mean, putting a superintendent in this position just makes me think how little the the public and or state and and federal government regard public education. It, I mean, it's, it, it's it, an it, abdication it, of responsibility on the behalf of our political leaders. But it also says we don't care about you. Yeah, I mean, to me, it 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 it's it's it's. This guy's, you know, making frankly life or death decisions, and for 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 five percent of a budget. Yep. I mean, I I just it's it's so coercive and onerous. I just can't even. It's dis- I, it's despicable on and every. The counter argument. And the, and the, what I find even more disturbing is the counter argument. Well, it's only two percent. It's only a two percent or three or five percent fatality rate, and it's like. To, to put that on somebody, you know, let's just say it's a thousand people and you're talking about, well, I shouldn't have done that to myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just, you just put yourself in the arithmetic corner. Shouldn't have done that. But if it was 5%, it would be 50 people. So there you go. There you go. Good job. But anyway, either, either way, that's, that's not a fair decision. That's not a fair thing to ask. To be like, well, we're just going to sacrifice 50 people. I don't know who they are, but that's just how it's going to be. And the other thing that I think it really highlights is this whole discussion on schools opening or closing. It's this total binary argument. You either open them or you close them. Like, it's such an incredible lack of imagination on the part of school leaders and on the part of politicians on the state and national level to do anything different and to think about school in any sort of different way that may work. And the thing that I've thought about, and I don't think we're going to get a chance to talk about the pandemic pods um, that, you know, people in communities are organizing. So it's like, okay, there's clearly a, a desire and a demand for small groups of kids to get together to do work or socialize or do more normal like kid-like things. So why can't you take that idea and expand it out, whether it's these like mini schools and, um, you know, you're assigning teachers to really small groups of kids to teach them outside 
or just something along those lines where it's just not the same open or closed argument. I just find it really frustrating that we don't have any other ingenuity or any other ideas beside open up, people get sick, probably going to die or stay closed with this less than ideal remote learning environment. So you, so you do think the remote learning environment is a part of the binary, um, a part of this dichotomy you're describing. So you, you, okay. So just, so, and I don't, your, your daughter's going into sixth grade. Yeah. Middle school. So for like the early, my kids are in the early elementary years, right? Mm-hmm. And parents are just like losing their minds. They, you can't, you have to sit with a kid the entire time that they're doing something. I know. Right. You know what I mean? And it's, it's impossible. You have to have, you have to do it or somebody else. Parent, has parent, to do parent, it. Parent, parents of rising seniors are losing their minds too. I mean, they're just, they're, they're, they're all, a lot of them are losing their minds. You know, and if you have parents that work like, thank God we all work, are able to work remotely. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you have parents that are working out of the house, who's going to sit there with that first grader, the fifth grader, the seventh grader. And then what do they do about their work? You know? So it, it's just, again, just ridiculous lack of ingenuity and lack of answers towards childcare, which is a huge part of this. Um, but also specifically schools. And as you said, remote learning. And, I just, and from all the evidence that we're hearing from health professionals is like, realistically, if there was a national shutdown for a month for let's say four to five weeks, we could effectively end the, the spread of this, of the disease, but it would require a national shutdown to say, we're not going anywhere. We're going to make sure that your salaries are paid. We're going to make sure that you have the stuff that you need, but for a month we're going to shut down and we could end it, but there's not that national leadership. It's a patchwork of laws and regulations across states and counties and sometimes none. I'm just, I, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm confused. I'm just confused because I don't know. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a cave, frozen caveman lawyer. I, I don't know, Peter. I mean, you know, uh, Mr. Gr- uh, Greg Gregorich's his school system you know, maybe because of its size might be able to be a little bit more nimble and, and do some of the things that you've described. I'm not sure based on um, the past of large bureaucratic school systems, whether they have the ability to flex in that way yeah. um, to adapt. I, I think it is a little bit binary. That's how they're set up. Um, we either do it this way, which is how we know how to do it, or we do it this way. Um, but, but, but it's only binary. It was only binary until March, you know, that, cause that was the solution that we came up with. So that was, okay, well we just, we need a quick solution, a band-aid. quick turnaround, a bandaid. And I, I totally get what you're saying that, yes, it's none of what I'm talking about is easy and I don't have a lot of great ideas on the subject, but to then be like, well, we did this thing. So now it's entrenched is remote learning is what we do. It's like we just started it. Why right. is it entrenched? I haven't been, I haven't the been power, the power of a traditional school model is showing its ugly head in the way that school districts across the country are sending out their schedules and sending out their expectations for at home instruction, which is like, like you said earlier, Pete, which was like, let's mirror as much as we possibly can, what was done in the, in the classroom in the same way at home, which is not 
the way to be going about it. I, I take your point about there, there, there has to be other innovative approaches that we need to consider and think about. Uh, okay, okay, but so to, to defend, I feel like I'm in the position of defending schools here. To defend them, there was from late May into June, tremendous building political pressure to open in the fall. So my guess is, is that most systems put all of their eggs into we're going to open correct basket, right? Because like this guy, he felt pressure. Yep. And so there was no margin for innovation or, you know, let's think outside the box. Is there a middle ground here? Could we do some kind of a hybrid? It was open, open, open. Um, And if you don't open, you know, you're either going to be failing your communities or there are going to be, there are going to be, you know, onerous local and state and federal response. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I, f- I feel like schools, again, were put in a position where we started this discussion that there w- it was a little bit of a no win. Yeah, for um, sure. And, and it's, uh, it's 100% a no win. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's an imperfect, no matter what the solution is, it's an imperfect solution. Yeah. You know, and I think that is for yeah. sure true. There are no good answers. Right. There's no great solutions. There's no perfect solution. It, it, you know, I don't say it is what it is, but, um, you know, I just, I kind of, I don't know. I, I, I just wish there was uh, something out there that like inspired me a little bit more than we're going to do the brick and mortar stuff at home. Yeah. Stay where you like, are. That's as creative as we've gotten. You know? I, I do think that school leaders need to take stock of what is happening now. And as, as Rahm Emanuel said, uh, don't let a crisis go to waste. I think we need to really think about in the future, when this, whenever this pandemic goes away, we have an opportunity to change public education as we know it from the top to the bottom. And we would be remiss to go back as we were in February. I, 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 will, I will say, though, this is a teeny small example of what I think we can. I, I would also not like to see public school systems lose what they've learned from this virtual ex- experiment, because I know in the work that I've done with adults, largely not with kids, but with adults in planning and working together, there have been some, there have been some outcomes or effects that have been really positive in the work that, that I've done with people online yeah. in, in ways that I, that I, I sometimes feel like we wouldn't have gotten done in person. Yeah. Um, I, I are, mean, are you talking I, about like specific projects or like how you were, I'm talking about that. I think our collaboration in some ways has been, has been really enhanced um, in the way that we've interacted online. I've seen people step up, and do more, um, be more willing to be leaders in the virtual world yeah. and take on more. I feel like we're more nimble in that, let's say a typical summer meeting. How much easier is it now to get everybody together online than it is to find a time where everybody can get to school 
yep. and drive and drive a half an hour or forty five minutes. Yeah. Um. I mean, in 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 the area that we live, I you know we can pop on and we can share a Google Doc or interact and we can develop something really quickly. Yep. You don't and, need to be in person to do that. Right. And I and I so I I mean I think that there are some positive things. I don't see why that can't happen virtually in the classroom as well. Yeah. I, I would have liked to have seen an incredible, you know, you know, I said to you all back in the spring that school systems should have shut down in May and they yep. should have, sp- and they should have spent a month on professional development for teachers. Yep. And they should have said, this is your, this is the new normal. This is how you're going to teach. We're going to spend a month getting you really good at it. Depending you know, regardless of where you're starting, you're going to end up here and you're going to be able to do these things. Nobody did that. Well, you also think about context. New York's, New York's cases were drastically bending and going down in May, right? We, I mean, you could talk to Dr. Fauci who probably assumed that there would be a spike in cases in the summer. So hindsight's twenty twenty, But I, I do agree with you to, that school systems could be spending a lot more time and capital or could have spent a lot more time and capital on different approaches, different ways to think about these. Things. I mean, get, get, you know, I'd also like to think to the, you're, the you're, you're social emotional learning. I think just as a, an aside, I think we've spent a lot more time as leaders and teachers focusing on our own mental health, but also highlighting it in students being like, this also needs to be at the forefront of our minds of our kids the social emotional welfare of our kids, which I think is super positive. Yeah. All right. Uh, you had the last word. So stay tuned. We're going to have to come back and see what um, we need to find out what superintendent Gregorich decides to do. Yeah. I think they delayed, uh, they pushed back the start of school month in Arizona, which if you remember, we interviewed Kathy Hoffman. So right. That's right. Of schools. We did. Yeah. Is this the, is the, is this the episode where we brag about all the people that we've interviewed in the past? <laughs> uh, yeah, John King. Uh, I have a quiz that. for that. I have a quiz for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Uh, switching gears. We're, we don't have to go to a break, do we, Mr. Krabs? No, we'll just go right into uh, Dear Betsy here. <laughs> okay. All right, Dear Betsy. All right. So it is uh, quite the busy Dear Betsy this week, as you might imagine. Uh, with the CARES Act, uh, there was a funnel of money that opened up. CARES uh, Act. That's so yeah. funny. The CARES Act. <laughs> the it's CARES a, Act. It's an acronym, isn't it? Yes, that opened up uh, for public schools. Um, and so one of the things that they initially said, her and Trump said, um, was that if schools didn't open, then maybe, you know what, maybe we'll just withhold your money. We're just not going to give you money, states and or school districts, unless you open up. Uh, and as you might have heard, science shouldn't get in the way of schools opening up. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but she did recently walk that back a little bit. Um, uh, she told Fox News, sh- shocker, that that's who she was talking to. American investment <laughs> in education is a promise to our students and families. And if schools aren't going to reopen, we're not suggesting pulling funding from education, but instead allowing families to take that money and figure out where their kids can get educated if their schools are going to refuse to open. So she is using code for anyone, anyone? Vouchers. Vouchers, there you go. So instead of just saying, we're not going to give it to you, that's going to be the current and or the next push 
um, which they've tried and it's failed again yes. and again and again and again. Every time it's been brought up for states, yep. um, it's been pushed back upon, but that's going to be their next push. Let's it's, use, let's use the crisis to, to really kill public education. Right. Let's find, do our best. Find private schools that are yep. open, get parents money to go to the private schools. Are open. Yep. So that this oh, shows Robbie, yeah, that, you are, that, Robbie, that, you are that, muted. My, my friend that exemplifies the, you know, people talk before this is pre-Trump. People talk about uh, or complain about the the Department of Education or this, that, or the other bureaucratic organization. But this shows the power of of the, this particular department and what it means to have someone who has ill will for public education they hold, and why they hold it's the so purse important. strings. Correct. Pretty important. All right. Moving on. Um, I got crepes. I was yes. going to ask you, did she, yes. was that her exact words refused, yes. refused? Uh, what do you mean refused? She, you said schools. Uh, uh, yeah, if, if their schools are going to refuse to open. Yes, that's that, her quote. That, those, that's the quote. Correct, yes. So she, <laughs> so she I just love that she. It's like a it protest in. statement, like, we're not going to open just to show you. I, I love that she frames it that way. Well, that's the what school- they all think. They all think that they're, cl- they're staying closed to hurt, to hurt Trump in the election. <sighs> that's, that's the reason. And also think about it, like, they're, they're calling for the pulling of Title I funds. And who does that hurt? Not, it not really hurt, people in corporations. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt them. It doesn't hurt Trump's base. Actually, it probably will hurt Trump's base in West Virginia, for example where there are many Title I schools, but they don't care about that. No, and, and I would argue that the folks in those, in those areas, they, they might not care all that much either. It's pretty binary for them. You know, you, you, you wear a mask and the devil's coming. <laughs> yeah, basically. Sorry. Jeez. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it is a... It is a partisan nation that we live in. Yeah. Indeed. So yeah. along those lines, a coalition of uh, attorneys general, uh, I don't have the number here. I believe it's nine. So confusing that the S is on the first word. Attorneys <laughs> generals. <laughs> Attorney generals. Yeah, that is weird. I don't know why they do that. Anyway, uh, they're suing uh, the Department of Education slash the DeVos um, for how they're interpreting part of the CARES Act. And without getting too nitty-gritty uh, into the wonkiness of it. Wonky. Wonkiness of it. Uh, basically, they are telling uh, schools um, th- that it's going to result in increasing uh, private school shares of the CARES Act dollars from $127 million for private schools to $1.5 billion. <laughs> Billion with a B. Billion dollars. Yes. So again, I'm sensing a common theme here, moving money away from public education and towards private schools. So they're suing or saying they can't do that. Um, Additionally, we got a lot going on here. God, Mr. Krabs. Yeah. The Supreme Court on uh, June 30th, which was, oh, wow, that was a while ago. All right. Sided with three Montana families who asked the court to declare that excluding religious schools from student aid programs is unconstitutional. So basically, if you wanted to attend a private school, you could not apply for federal aid money because it is a private school and you are choosing to send your kids there. Um, The Supreme Court said, no, those families should be allowed uh, to access 
those same funds and those same monies to attend, again, private schools, not public schools. Death by a thousand cuts. Yes. And I didn't have this in there, but then she went on to compare it to the persecution of Catholics that happened, I believe, in the 19th century was what she referenced it. And that basically uh, this whole time in this refusal to use public money to pay for private schools has really just been a form of religious intolerance. Is there any way after the Trump administration that we could, we could put her in jail? Is that possible? No. Okay. The Catholics are under fire, according to Betsy DeVos, and they need their, uh, they need their money to go to private school. Yeah. Well, great. she's, you know, she's been, she's been consistent. <laughs> she is. She's, she, I mean, look, we've said that about her, man. She is yeah. very consistent on her. I, I can't even call it school choice anymore without wanting to break the TV. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, and then lastly, in regards to uh, teacher strikes, as some of you have, may have heard, um, there has been some talk that if teachers are forced to go back uh, prior to some uh, conditions being met, you know, like the safety of them and their students. Uh, being alive. Back. Yeah, being alive. And stop whining about it. God, yeah. stop whining about dying. Ridiculous. Just 5%. Get yeah. over it. Who cares? Uh, but anyway, uh, the teachers may strike. And so uh, what Mr. Voss said was that and this is a quote, parents and children can't be held captive to other fears or other agendas. Uh, and I guess the agenda, once again, would be the screwing over of Donald Trump in the fall. That's right. Education is about a child in their future. And we as adults have got to do the things necessary to step in and be that support to the children that we are charged with. And we know that it can be done safely. And for those teachers who may have vulnerabilities themselves, there are other things that can be done so they can continue to contribute in a major way. They need to go in anyway. Yep, go in anyway. So my question to that is, given the movements that we saw in 2018, teacher movements, do we, do we foresee that happening again even in right-to-work states? I, I think that this has the potential to be a real boon for unions. I and, think so too. And for organized labor in general, just because... It's such. It's so egregious and it's so ridiculous. Yes. To to be forcing teachers to go back when the, it's like nobody's done anything to get this virus under control. There's or over a thousand people dying a day. But we need schools open so that yeah. the economy can reopen. Yeah. It's like, man, I get it. I am the first in line that wants to be done with this and yes. get back to normal. But um, so I, I do think that if. Um, you know, it does seem that m- most major metropolises in the country are, are going virtual, um, New York being one of the major exceptions. But yeah. um, if and when, you know, because they are going to open, so it's just a matter of what the conditions are like on the ground. You know, yeah. it, it does have the potential to to really um, uh, energize teachers and, and like I said, kind of energize labor. Yeah, agreed. I, 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 the only thing I would say to that, though, is is I mean, like we just said with West Virginia the move to open schools in the South is largely supported by the population in those States. Make no bones about it. Yeah. So that, it's, I mean, it, that is true. But when, when we get to a point where there are students getting infected and teachers literally dying, there will be, uh, I think a groundswell of people just being like, screw this. I'm not going back to school. Did, did you see the headline today? I did not. In, in the morning, in the morning mix by Katie Shepard in the Post, August fourth, no. 
Teachers returned to a Georgia school district last week. 260 employees have already oh, yeah. gone home to quarantine. Yep. Well, I mean, what today in other expected news? Well, wow. in, in, in Casey, one of the pieces you wrote about, we, you, we talked, you wrote about that was one teacher gets sick, one teacher, they have to quarantine, yeah. then a sub comes in, and then just the domino effects right. of it is just so, yeah. so insane. It's, it's un. There's not, it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. One person can infect like 53 people. I, yeah, but just look at the, look at the pictures of Oshkosh, Wisconsin last weekend, Wisconsin. I, why were they making dungarees? Look at, look at Myrtle beach on July 4th. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, you, you, you can't necessarily tease apart the the will of these of the populations of these states from what schools do i mean they are of a piece i I guess i don't understand i'm 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 saying that schools are opening because people want them open correct and 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 the teachers that work in those schools live in those states and sometimes share the same views so i I mean don't don't necessarily think the teachers in those states feel the way you feel about opening that's all I'm saying. We're making I, some assumptions. Well, and, here. well, I am making assumptions, but however, when the teacher across the hall from you dies because they got infected, it's going to change their mind. Uh, okay, that's another assumption. <laughs> I'm just saying, I I don't know about that, Robbie. Okay. When have we been afraid to make assumptions on this show? I know, but I'm just. I mean, spend a little time in the in the South and walk into the Wawa with no masks and and Wawa's you know, not you, the South. what's that? Piggly Wiggly, maybe. Okay. Uh, food Lion. Okay, I'll talk about the Scotchman in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. I went in there a bunch and was terrified. Yeah. Um, no because, one's wearing a mask. Yeah. No offense to the Scotchman. I, yeah, it's a nice place of business. Why were you with the Scotchman out of curiosity? What were you getting? I was going in there to buy my kids all their junk food so yeah, they some, could survive for the week so we didn't have to go out to dinner. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you necessarily. I, I, am I'm a little, I would stop short of saying that I think this is going to have some impact on how teachers collectively fight for their rights. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll see. I mean, it's a big question mark and I'm not in any way certain. It was just, a. it it has the possibility to. Yeah. All I'm saying. We'll discuss all you're saying. All right. Well, that is it for Dear Betsy. Thanks for letting me do the segment, guys. Yeah. Loved it. I had a question about that. I, Mr. Siddons was just on the Zoom call. He's just sitting back in his recliner. Um, but how did you get that? I didn't, I didn't approve you doing Dear Betsy. He filled out form 434-4A. We left it on your desk last week. You didn't, yeah, didn't, you didn't sign it. It was oh, in your folder weird. that says signatures. Yeah. You did we, a great job. You did a great job, Mr. Graves. We put it in the dry folder with all our uh, blogs. <laughs> Maybe that's why you didn't see it. <laughs> I do. I shouldn't have opened myself up to the zings. So funny. How many all times right. have How many times have I spoken Klingon during this? Have I been pretty good? My connection. Once. Just once. Yeah. It's, it's been okay. Good. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, my my Mac. I did some stuff on it, Mr. Sids. All right. I'm proud of you. <laughs> all right. All right. Casey has a quiz for us. No way. I I'm do. done. Five questions. Then leave. You can go. Goodbye. The show is over. <laughs>
All right, go ahead. I, it's not even in the show. Oh, there wanna, it is. It's, you want to break? You can't look. You cheated. Don't look. Jesus. It's called a. Is it? It's titled a regular quiz. Oh is my that, god, I hate you. <laughs> Stop cheating. Okay, sorry. Scroll up. I always beat Crable anyway. Go ahead. I, I, now, I, now we know why. That's right. Do you want to go to a break? No, no. We're gonna. We're plowing Whoa. through. We're plowing Whoa. through. Okay, moving ahead here. Five questions. Crable's tired from the ready? study. <laughs> Number one. This is this is current events. Current events. Number one, a man charged with crimes and facing jail time in New York recently tried to fake his own death by sending his death certificate into the local prosecutor. How did they find him out? Is it A, because of typos, B, he dropped it off himself, or C, he posted it on Instagram? The gram, IG. B, dropped it off himself. It's actually A, because of typos. Damn it. Right. Upon inspection of the certificate, he used a different font type and size, and the word registry was spelled R-E-G-S-I-T-R-Y. Mm. Reg, regstry. Regstry. First mistake. Number two, a rare lobster has a new home at the Akron Zoo after being discovered at a red lobster last week. On Tuesday, the staff at Cuyahoga Falls. I don't want to say that. How do you even say that town? Cuyahoga. It's not even Cuyahoga. that hard. Jeez, Cuyahoga Falls. Come on, Cuyahoga. <laughs> Location of the restaurant chain were unpacking an airlifted delivery of the live lobsters when they noticed a strangely colored shape mixed in. What did they see? Was it A, a shark, B, a mini lobster, or C, a blue lobster? Blue lobster. Dr. Dobbs? Uh, what was C? A blue, blue lobster. Blue lobster. Uh, he already claimed that. I, I'll go with a shark. It was actually a blue lobster. Dang. A blue American lobster floating among the common red namesakes of the seafood empire. There's some research, researchers think only one in two million American lobsters are blue. Oh. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think I knew that. Genetic anomaly. You would know it. What's the, what's the Latin name for lobster, Robbie? Um, Lobstericum. Ephemerella <laughs> Dorothea. Ephemerella Dorothea. Are you, are you serious? <laughs> I'm, totally, I'm totally serious. Your face is just, you look stunned <laughs> that I just hit you with a Latin uh, speech. Lobster, wiki. How did you know that so quickly? Are you, are you, I, that's not true. <laughs> No, you're there. wrong. You're wrong. I looked it up. Lacusta. Look, look up. Right. Look, look up. Look up. Ephemerella Dorothea. Okay. Ephemerella. Ephemerella Dorothea. Is that an earthworm? Dorothea Rockburn's ephemeral art and <laughs> legacy. I think that. I think I spelled it wrong. All right. Uh, number All right. three. Number Maybe three. In a, in a hotel in the outback of Australia. Emus have been banned for bad behavior. What ha- are they alleged to have done? A, they learned to climb stairs and ventured behind the bar. B, they snatched food away from customers. Or C, all of the above. I'm going with, I'm going with uh, B. I'm going with all of the above. Correct answer is C, all of the above. I'm getting once, once they learned how to climb stairs, they knew something was wrong. <laughs> Number four, a newly named Oregon park commemorates an important piece of local history, the dynamiting of a dead whale that took place 50 years ago. 
Locals were given the chance to vote. First mistake on the name. <laughs> what did they decide on for its name? A, Rolling Tides Community Park. B, Dune View Park. Or C, Exploding Whale Memorial Park. C, Exploding Whale Memorial Park. I'll go with C also. That's correct. In 1970, the dead decaying sperm whale that washed up near Florence posed a serious health hazard. It was too big to drag away or bury, so they decided to use dynamite, which turned out exactly as you might think, and it's on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) And number five, Sir Isaac Newton, famous for developing the three laws of motion and advancing calculus, apparently had a far-out idea on how to treat the plague, also called the Black Death, what was it that is now on sale at auction? A, a recipe for toad vomit lozenges. B, instructions for how to test gravity. Or C, diary entries that explains why calculus stinks. B. I'll go with the toad toad lo- lozenges. The correct answer is A, a recipe for toad vomit yes! lozenges. <laughs> I got a point. He describes in detail how to suspend a toad by its legs in a chimney for three days until it vomits up earth with various insects in it. This vomit, this vomit must be caught on a dish of yellow wax. These quizzes get weirder and weirder. It's just very odd. I had to dig real deep for these. All right. uh, Two two references. Mr. Sids, I know you'll be interested in this because you'll want to use the Googs on it. Um, Yes. The Oshkosh Sandbar Bash. Uh, So it's, I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there to support my point about how how seriously people are taking COVID. Um, by the way, there's a few 65 year old dudes in that picture that should not be there without, (laughs) without their shirts on. You guys want to go down to the bar? Yeah. Um, bar guys. And then speaking of, uh, blue lobsters and sharks, Mr. Krabs, if you want to see something really disturbing, um, because I know you're an ocean lover, Google, Google, um, dolphin attacked on long beach Island. New Jersey. Um, oh dear! You'll you'll <laughs> it'll oh, it'll, give you, it'll give you pause about going in the surf again. Uh, I just see that there's a sharks attacking and a lot of blood in the water. So yeah, okay. in, uh, right on the beach at LBI, which is a glorious beach. I've been there uh, several times in my life, and it that is not far off the shore. No, and there's a lot of sharks Ooh. attacking it. There's oh more than God. one. I'm yeah, watching yeah. it right now. Yeah, it's really, it's very scary, isn't it? <laughs> look, at, look at your face, Mr. Sids. All right, folks. Hold uh, it, hold it. Thanks for coming back for the season three finale. It's great to have you. Um, thanks to Dr. Johan Neem for joining us uh, once again on Ed's Not Dead. And um, as always, you can find Ed's Not Dead on Twitter I can't even remember where you can find us at Ed's Not Dead PC and check out the website, edsnotdead.com. Uh, Casey, when's your new blog? Blog post uh, comes out. Going to be posted. Blog post comes out uh, whenever I get feedback from Mr. Mr. Graves and Dr. Dobbs. Okay, got it. Um, and, and the topic again is? It's uh, student voices during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. I, w- I want to read that. Okay. Yeah. As always, uh, we are brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership instruction and 21st century school reform. 
All right, fellas. As always, it was great. Uh, when is the first episode of season four? <laughs> season, Can you believe season four. Oh my crazy. lord! Crazy, cray. How are we? How are we still surviving? Uh, we got. We're at once school starts. Right, September, mid September. Yes, sounds about right. Yeah, we usually do a week or two after Labor Day. I feel like. All right. So. All, right. All right, folks, as always, spread the word, word about Ed's Not Dead. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate all the support. Send us some show feedback. Smash that uh, subscribe button. Yeah, the subscribe button and um, get us some show feedback and you'll be the first to be mentioned in the inaugural show of season four.